Hey everyone, welcome to Time Sensitive. This week, Andrew's in conversation with the artist Jamie Nairs. What'd you talk with her about? So Jamie is a fascinating artist and really appropriate for this program. We talked about the passage of time, the physics of motion, and the essence of self and all the ways she's explored this in her work and her life. She's someone who's captured seriously profound elements of the human experience by working with time as a theme for the past 50 years. So she's learned a lot. She has a lot of thoughts to share. And of course, we got into her experience of New York as a young artist. Yeah, moving from England. Yeah, raising a family here. And eventually, her recent transition to womanhood at 65, coinciding with her retrospective. And of course, so much of her work is really about fluidity. I imagine you got into that. Yeah, none of her work is about stasis, and all of her work is about change. Can't wait to listen to this. Before we get into it, we'd first like to thank our Season 5 sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. Through its courses, talks, exhibitions, and publications, as well as its extensive research program, Lecole sits at the intersection of art, gemology, and craftsmanship. Founded in 2012, it explores and showcases jewelry in all its aspects, contributing to and consolidating knowledge around the world of jewelry. From prehistoric to contemporary jewelry, from men's jewelry to tribal designs, from rare gems to goldsmithing techniques, Lacole covers a wide range of topics and approaches, making jewelry knowledge more accessible to all. Lacole allows the public to learn about things such as the no longer existing jewelry house La Cloche, 20th century female jewelers, and the impeccable work of the artist, jewelry maker, and metalsmith, Daniel Brush. Opening up a territory that has long remained largely unknown and compartmentalized, the jewelry arts, Lacole brings an incredible level of knowledge and rigor to all that it does. It even has a scientific council made up of experts from the realms of academia, museums, and science. This group helps ensure that its various programs, exhibitions, and projects have a consistently high level of quality. You can find out more about Lacole at www.lacolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now here's Andrew and Jamie. Jamie, thank you for coming into the studio today. It's my pleasure. So it's always kind of the question of where to begin. And five decades of creating art concerned with time Mm -hmm. and the self, investigations into who and what we are. Yeah. When I got the opportunity to really deeply re-engage with your work the last couple of weeks, I thought, what do we talk about? It's so elliptical, but it's all kind of about the things that we care about and we talk about on the program. It does go in circles uh, the the way um, I've moved in circles myself with that big freehand one that a lot of people seem to like. Yeah, but I thought we could start with street. Sure. Because we're in New York and we're coming out of a time where things were still and that we were in a moment of stasis and a piece that you had explored where you slowed New York way down and let us kind of see the people, the interactions, and a kind of equivalence of humanity. So I was wondering, yes. before we get into the piece specifically, how was lockdown for you? 
I like the equivalence of humanity. That's good. Lockdown was great because I it started off in a bad way. I was up in Millbrook, where my longtime friend and gallery owner and dealer for Paul, in a word, Paul was dying. And I actually made a film. He wanted me to do it. I had a whole bunch of 16 millimeter cameras and and a few others besides. And I just shot every kind of film stock. And I made a film of, of Paul dying, oh, wow. which is called Love Paul. And I balanced it with um, the garden that he loved coming to life in the early spring. So there was one going and the other appearing. And I think it's a very beautiful film. I, it's silent. It seemed appropriate that it should be silent. Paul is the, not a man of many words. <laughs> no, it's very appropriate. <laughs> His texts were always really good. He loved trees, too. He did. He did. And cared a lot about the trees on the property. He did. And it ends, actually, with the cherry blossom, which is flowering just at the right time. And it's a, such an extravagance of color and everything against the blue, blue, blue sky. So that's where it started. That's where lockdown started for you. That's where that it started experience? for me. And then I moved. I stayed there for a couple of months because COVID was happening. And then I moved back to New York. People were still yelling out the window at 7 o'clock to herald the doctors and nurses who were giving their lives for us. One of whom, a dear friend of mine, um, she was a nurse up at uh, Columbia Presbyterian, and she died right there at the beginning. Such a sweetheart. But then I came back to my apartment, and there was an enormous construction crane. And I'm on the 25th floor, and this thing was reaching way up above me. And they had started to build the building, which is on the site of Jeff Koons's old studio, which I had a bird's-eye view down. Yeah, uh, this is, yes. I had the bird's-eye view from the 25th floor, and it was like an architectural plan come to life with all the workers color-coded and electricians and carpenters and metal workers and all the rest. I started filming with my... Um, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera, which mm -hmm. makes such a beautiful image. Yeah. And I filmed it until, you know, all the way until they built it up. And eventually it comes parallel with me. And then it disappears into the clouds and the film stops. So in a way, you were still, during that time, visiting movement, the city. And I grow. was. I was filming like crazy. I have hours and hours of footage. It was just so fascinating to watch. Plus, I always have great respect for the uh, people, the unseen and anonymous people that have such an effect on our lives. Mm. And uh, you'd normally see buildings being built from the, from the ground looking up, and, mm. and that's not seeing very much of anything. And this was the opposite. I was from the top looking down. And I was impressed by a number of things how hard they worked, for one, which was a real surprise to me. They're just going all out the whole time. Then they break for a <laughs> like a soft drink, and then they get back to it. How hard they work, how incredibly organized it is. It's like a military campaign or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I filmed this thing being built, 
and now I have <laughs> more footage that I know what to do with, and I'm, I've begun editing it. Well, the idea of looking at people is a very New York thing, right? Yes. I mean, this is what the city's about. Yeah. It's sort of a, a New Yorker's recreational activity is, is looking at people. So aside from the obvious fact that the film The Street or the film you're working on now was made by looking at New York, do you see this as a piece, and I'm talking about street, about New York at that time? Because when I thought about 2011, I mean, things were becoming super fast and divided. You had Occupy Wall Street. Instagram was taking off. It was a year old. But the film is sort of about, it's almost like an antidote to that. It's sort of about, it's a celebration. It's also, for me, and I think many others who've watched, it's about oneness. You really begin to feel this idea that that every one of them is in us in some way. And so I was wondering if you were thinking about this idea of the infinite selves and the multiplicity that we all carry with us. There's a number of very good questions in there. It was an extraordinary multiplicity of selves. And as a viewer to my own film, I realized very early on that it was going to be in some measure more than I had intended. I didn't realize that it was going to be quite such a strong emotional experience for people. Well, the film started with myself in my car driving around the city pointing a, a very low-res inexpensive high-speed camera out the window and just shooting stuff. Just curious what would happen? Just curious. And I realized very quickly that there was magic happening on the street and that the high-speed camera had the ability to catch like little nuances of, of behavior and interaction, which the naked eye couldn't see. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, those cameras are made to reveal the unseeable, the hummingbird wings moving or the thing vibrating so fast. through the apple and all yeah, Exactly, yeah. through the apple, the, the drop of milk. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, yeah, I kind of reversed that. No, but I realized very quickly with my little cheap camera that there were things happening and it should be looked at further. And I applied for a grant from someone saying, well, describing the film I wanted to make, and I'm amazed looking back on it, how it's like perfect, my description. You knew what you wanted to make, but didn't know the effect of it at the time. No, I knew the effect and everything. I, I, I'd realized by that point, but I didn't get the money, and so it lingered for two years in my mind. And then I showed it to someone at, at my gallery, and they just loved it. This was a little um, teaser that I made for my cheap camera. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the money to make the film. I'd originally intended the soundtrack to be a kind of sonic version of the visual to try and reveal something about the sound of the street that was unhearable. <laughs> and I tried driving through the street with a shotgun mic, pointing out the camera, catching snippets of conversation. And I tried I tried a number of different things, and none of them worked. And then one day we were editing and just happened to be listening to music and realized how music affected 
the film. And music had been the last thing I thought about putting on this thing. But then it just seemed to have this very palpably strong effect. I very often try in my films not to maneuver people's emotions this way or that. And I thought that I'd been doing that with this film, just, you know, uh, the kind of like ob too much. objective. Yeah. yeah. But it just worked so well with music. But I wanted it to be, I wanted the music to be solo, one person, as a kind of counterpoint to all mm. the hundreds and thousands of people in the film. I just knew that Thurston would be able to do it because he knows the city, he knows the attitude. He was just perfect. And I wanted him to do it acoustic uh, on the 12 string. So um, he did, he, he was going off on tour and he, he had a couple of hours the previous night and he'd, he sat down and just knocked off this music. Wow. And I mean, I say knocked off this music. <laughs> There's obviously a lot of. Took him 60 something years yeah, to get there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. And then um, my sound editor crafted the music into a soundtrack and did a beautiful job. That was Bill Seary from Mercer Media. And we sat together and. What were some of the other 15 or 20 questions in that first? When you're watching that film and you realize that, and I think a lot of your work is about this, is that it's not documentation. It's somehow trying to present an equivalence. When we look at those people, we create all sorts of things in our mind about them that have nothing to do with reality. It's true, and I love that about this film, that it's at the same time that it reveals things that you cannot see, it also creates things in the mind that weren't there. And th there are a few examples that I choose to illustrate that. And one of them is this guy who, when you see him, he's, he's walking down the street and he's looking at his shoes. It was in Chinatown. He's looking at his shoes, or he's looking at the ground. I mean, he's, he's just looking down, and he seems to be so dejected, like his world was completely falling apart. He looks so sad. And then you play it at real speed, and he's just making sure his shoelaces are tied, you know. Well, your job is not to tell the truth. That's <laughs> it's to help us find a kind of truth, right? A kind of truth in ourselves, yeah. 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 And I love that about that. It makes you think about all photography. It, it, it reveals the truth and the blindness in all photography in a way. And it, it also reveals the, in a sense, it reveals the moment before the photograph, the photograph and the moment afterwards, all of which color one another because the actual time frames in which these little clips and scenes are shot are almost equivalent to the exposure of a photograph. Yeah. You know, two seconds, three seconds, that sort of thing. Right, because you, you sort of burst it and choose a yeah. period of time. We had to be very on our toes and quick, agile with everything. <laughs> the, yeah. the eyes, the mind, and the fingers all at, yeah. at once. Because you're making choices actually when you're making it about what you choose to save and what yes. you choose to move on from. 
you also made this film that people really talk about consistently still, which is Pendulum, when you first came to New York, which is also about the street yeah, and how things move through the street. And of course, about time sort of on a surface level, but yes. but it's imbued with a lot. So I was hoping you could kind of describe the piece for anyone who hasn't yet seen it and how you came to make it and what you were concerned with at the time. Well, at the time, I was concerned with weights and measures. And I just moved to New York in 1974. I was living in the same neighborhood as all the artists who I admired and respected. And it was just wonderful. It was, I had a very blessed arrival in New York City. And the person whose work really grabbed me more than anyone's at that time was Richard Serra. And he was a neighbor and he would come over. You know, everybody, you just ran into people in the street the whole time. I was very taken with Richard's work. It was kind of my understanding of what he did, interpreted in my own way. It was like I brought movement into the mixture. And I think Amy Taubin said something about it being, you know, it was essentially a minimalist film, but there was, there was movement and there was a kind of visceral groan to the film which of course is in the soundtrack but it's quite a strong film emotionally it looks like a wrecking ball it looks like a wrecking ball but it's not a wrecking ball right. it sometimes gets called a wrecking ball and you know what am i gonna say but it's a copper sphere with water right exactly it's copper it's got water inside and uh, like i have said before if it hit the wall it would have cracked open like an egg right but uh, it didn't hit the wall. <laughs> right. And it hung from the famous bridge on, on yes. Staple Street, where you lived. I lived in the covered part. And what you can't see because it's been taken down was one floor above that, joining the two roofs, was a walkway bridge. And that appears in the film. So that enabled me the pendulum was strung from the walkway bridge so that it was it had a really long wire on it. I think over the course of a weekend, just filmed and filmed, and then made a soundtrack by tying a microphone to the harmonic point on the on the wire, wire like a great instrument. And that's what makes that sound like the creaking of rigging on an old sailing ship or something. Well, it's terrifying. I mean, you're watching this thing rip through public space, right? And shared space. One of the things that I was thinking about in revisiting it was, I was curious if it in some way was about limits of control and about this idea of control for you. What were you personally looking at with this piece? I think I have a penchant for setting something up and then letting go and seeing what happens. There's an element of that for sure in, in Pendulum, some of the earlier films and some of the later films are like one idea. Like I think of a film like Block, mm -hmm. where my hand's just tracing one city block across from one avenue to the next. That's a very simple idea that's kind of flourishes in the mind as you watch it, because it's shot at five frames a second, and each frame is like a still, like a painting or something. But Pendulum 
was, oh gosh, it's accrued a lot of meaning with time. And some of the meaning was, I guess, impossible to have predicted when I made it. But it has the the kind of clock-like connotations of a giant pendulum swinging have really come to mean something more Yeah. now as we look back, which is something I quite like to do. Oh, you asked me if street had been made as... I made street definitely as a instant historical document. I meant it to be about New York there and then, and I meant it to be something that we... In fact, when I was raising money, I said that I wanted to make a film to be seen 100 years from now. Like Berlin's Symphony of a Great City or something. Yes. These turn-of-the-century films that have just become more and more important over time. Well... Maybe that's why I didn't get the money, <laughs> because, I, because I kind of shortchanged myself. But, but yeah, there was, um, there was intention in that. Of course, Pendulum itself is very unpopulated, and that's partly because of the glory of Tribeca in the early 70s, which was pretty much unpopulated. There were a few artists living in this building or that building, and the rest was egg and butter factories and stuff. You know, just a little bit more on Pendulum before we leave it, that at one point the perspective shifts. It shifts from objective to... Subjective. Um, yeah. Yeah. Were you aware at that point of the tools you had at hand, or was it just, oh, I wonder what happens if we put the camera on the Pendulum? It was a little bit of both, but I would say more of I wonder what happens if, <laughs> if, I, if I do this. I wonder what happens if I do that. You know, there was a measure. I knew that it looked beautiful from when I shot from above and it's moving in a great circle. It just seemed like the next last thing to do. But what effect have you noticed it had on the viewer? What is the, the outcome of shifting from the objective to the subjective? This I couldn't say for sure. You don't have to ask a viewer other than myself. (laughs) I guess, like, I I guess it is a radical shift. To me, it's in the same way that I'm not really so emotionally affected by the film. It doesn't seem terrifying to me or anything because I made the damn thing, you know. To me, it was just what I did if I look back on it. But no, I think what you're getting at is so important that your job is not to figure out the effect it's going to have. It's to ask the question and do the work. That's true. If you're trying to second-guess yourself, you kind of grind to a halt. At least I do. It's just the way I work. I'm sure you could try and calculate the effect on the viewer very precisely if you wanted. I tend to let go of it um, with the hope that the viewer will have the same excitement and sense of discovery that I have when I do it. Makes a lot of sense. And in a conversation with Christopher Wool about it that I read last night. Oh, yeah, yeah. You said Pendulum's one of your favorite films. Yeah. And it's really the summation of all of your thinking pre-1977. Yes. I was wondering, what do you mean by this? What thinking are you referencing? (laughs) Uh, 76. Oh, actually, 75. Pendulum was really made in 75, but I got the date wrong when I made the titles. So I thought, well, what does it matter? 76, 75. <laughs> but when I said that, I think I was thinking 
about my interests since arriving in New York. And it was a very, very intense learning curve for me that time. I came of age on the streets down there, I think. And I'd been interested in physics and flight and I made things around the three words, your pitch roll, a kind of um, total movement <laughs> summation of flight, Yeah, I guess. Well, you grew up in London. Uh, I was born in London. You were born in London and you spent your teenage years there? Not even. I was born in London and I moved to Sussex when I was three or four. And my father died that same year. And then I was sent off to boarding schools when I was seven in the great British tradition of, of get them and <laughs> get them young and you got them for life kind of thing. <laughs> and I think that was part of the reason why I took such pleasure in saying goodbye to London when I did, although I hadn't intended it to be such a long time, I realized immediately after arriving in New York that this was my home. A lot of people used to feel that. I don't know if they still do, but... At that time, for sure. At that time, right? You first felt like, oh my God, this is where I belonged all these years. Before you moved, you made this piece that I love called Red Handed, which oh, is yes. a, a self-portrait. It's very beautiful, probably aesthetically unlike the work you made when you got to New York in a way, in terms of it was color. That people know about, yeah. Yeah. I did do stuff. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of early, yeah. And it's a conceptual piece. It's about performance. It's about the body. It's and, a language play. Yeah, it's a language play. It's, there's a joke in it in there's a way. A, yes. But in hindsight, now, as we talk about how how much your work leaves room for meaning to change over time. Yes, when you look at that piece now, what do you think of? I'm very immediately taken with the the importance of hands in my work. How important it's been to me ever since. <laughs> ever since before I made that piece, the hands were always a great touch point for my creativity. In the paintings, I talk about language being thrown back in, from the throat back into the body and curtailed into the hands and all the meaning of the spoken word and, you know, the, the mind coming through the hands. So I love that. Like in that photograph, it's like my hands are red hot or something. That would be a nice photo too. <laughs> glowing like a and it's interesting furnace. because you always have an intermediary between your hand and the work yes I mean that you're using you, you're, the, the famous brushes you make mm. the cameras you use the tools you build to make your work the hand in a way rarely touches the work itself correct um, that's true yeah and also your forearm figures yes. in your work a lot and yeah there was another piece that I looked at in that context from that time, which is called A New Vein, 
Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Did you make that in Europe or when you were here? I made it just before I came. And that's where I embossed my, the part of the, the arm that would be mutilated in a suicide attempt or something. And I embossed this jagged line in it half the length of the forearm, which is made by impressing a little plastic map, a solid plastic map of the United States of America uh, into my arm. I must have made it when I knew that I was coming here. It was like I, I knew that I was, there was something new about to happen. That there was like a death of an old self and the yes, birth of a new one. Exactly. You arrived in New York. What did Tribeca feel like? What was the feeling of that time, as you remember? Well, I had nothing to compare it to. And, you know, I hadn't really lived in a city until... Because you were in Sussex. I was in Sussex, but al although I went to art school in London. So I lived... And plus, I, you know, I was always in London. But I had never really lived in the heart of a city until... 1974 when I arrived here and that part of New York the city was bankrupt as we know and everything was very run down and depopulated and abandoned and neglected and it was just the perfect place for an artist to be because there was all kinds of things you could do that you probably couldn't do now and it was like a I've said that it was like a kind of playground by which I mean that Anything was possible. How did you survive? I did a collection of strange jobs. I worked with a friend of mine who was a plumber. First job was to fix Philip Glass's toilet, I remember, <laughs> which was a bit unfair because he'd been a plumber himself. But yeah, I did stuff like that. I did carpentry. We had a little carpentry outfit called the Three Aces, which was me and my two friends. And I pity the people who employed us to build stuff because we did not know what we were doing. We winged it all yeah. the way. We also had a, a method of pilfering. You know, we were living in this neighborhood with places that were filled with giant cheeses and legs of ham and stuff. And it seemed like there was a little for the taking for others. And we found our way through the sidewalk into this one building right next to us, which was filled with just such things. And we had a method. We had a little ladder that we pushed out of the car down into the street. We would scurry down like rats and come out with gleaming silver cans of ham, like, like Excalibur coming out <laughs> through the, the lake or something. And they would quickly be thrown into the car. And Bassini Nuts was a great supplier of, um, that's the only one that's still there, I think. Yeah. Bassini. But yeah, we were kind of wild and broke a few laws, but none of them really seriously. <laughs> yeah, you weren't out to hurt anyone. We and, weren't out to hurt anybody. And you were doing so much different kind of work. And I think about, you know, you were making these yes. drawings, the sort of physics drawings, these very yes. graphic drawings, and you're making these films. Yes. And you were also playing in the contortions. That came a little late, in 1977. Yeah, but sort of that period. And yeah. which is amazing when you think about that band. I know it was short-lived for you, but... It was great. I mean, Brian Eno produced 
Yeah, no New York, he called it. Yeah. And all of this was very rhythmic, very percussive. All of the work, the yes. film work, the kind of James Brown funk band you were in. Yes. And all of that rhythm is also about marking time in a very explicit way. Yes. And so again, and I know I've been asking this, but I am curious if at the time you were thinking about that, or is it just something that occurred that you're seeing now in aggregate? I was thinking about it at the time. Uh, like my notebooks are full of stuff like marking time, which is kind of a nice play on words too, because it means standing still and moving at the same, in the same phrase. That was like a key element. I think rhythm, time, touch, tone are all present throughout the work. And the idea of measuring, you know, even the films like Block, it was like measuring a city block in a very physical human way. It was sort of primordial, much like Jato um, yes. Circle, which is this kind of repeat drawing of a circle on the wall. Yes. That you make, which is sort of has to be about Vitruvian Man and Da Vinci on some level, the sort of perfect body. Yes, although actually at the time that one wasn't foremost in my mind because it seemed so much less symmetrical than Vitruvian Man. <laughs> although actually I used to do it with both arms. I could seamlessly switch the tool from one hand to the other and reverse. That's an interesting point. Yes, I've forgotten that. Yeah, and all of it, this idea of time and rhythm and control and the body. Yes, and what is also explored the in-between, the non-binary, the space between, all leading to what you're probably most known for, at least maybe in our listeners' mind, which is your brush paintings. Yes. They follow a kind of line. They do. And it's this repeated gesture. I always th thought you could just put my paintings end to end and you'd have the story of the latter part of my life it's a trajectory it's a it's very often like a horizontal tracking shot of a brush stroke there's a beginning and a middle and an end they are marking time they're marking me in fact i've written a, a book that's called remarks ray marks which we're going to be putting out soon. What is that about? It's a facsimile of my notebooks from 1992 of all times, and I've been trying to finish it ever since. <laughs> I've been working on it for decades now, and that's only because I don't know why. Hey, everyone. Taking a quick break here to tell you a little bit about our season six sponsor, Le Cole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. In addition to exhibitions, publications, research projects, and public events, Le Cole offers a range of courses led by experts across jewelry, craft, history, and the arts. Celebrating its first decade this year, Le Cole, which has permanent campuses in both Paris and Hong Kong, plans to open a third space in Shanghai next year, and will soon open another in Paris, which will feature a public library of more than 7,000 reference works on jewelry and gems. At its main Paris space, Le Cole is also opening a Gemotech, or gem library, 
that contains some 1,200 stones for visitors to view and even handle. This year, they'll also be presenting six exhibitions in Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Paris, and publishing eight books. You can learn more about Lacole and its current and upcoming offerings at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now back to the episode. It seems that you don't ever complete work, that you <laughs> you want things to be able to be returned to. You want them to continue to be something that you can play with. It's a very nice observation, and I'll, I'll take it. I it's used not like to, you did the brush paintings, and then you're like, now I'm going to do the next thing, and I need to do something new. Yeah. <laughs> you're not concerned with that, which I think is one of the things that... Oh, I see what you that mean. That yeah. gives you this sense of agency, this feeling of... This is an actual authentic reflection of my interest. Yes. I do wonder a bit, but this kind of circles within circles. It always, like you were saying, kind of comes back to the same thing or picks up on something that was abandoned years ago. Many of the films which people know now, including Pendulum, I made them, and Pendulum I showed quite a bit, actually, but a lot of the shorter films were just thrown into a cardboard box. And I thought they were lost. It hurt me that they were lost because they'd always been very important to me and dear to my heart. And when I started to digitize some of my earlier films, I was like, damn, I wish I could find those films. I wish I knew where they were. And I was going through deep storage in my storage place, which had moved wholesale from like a barn out in, in Long Island to a, a place where it was um, flooded and burned from, you know, a fire from like one storage place to another. And somehow a lot of it survived. Oh, so you lost a lot of your storage in a fire? I lost some of it. I lost some of the early work, which still kind of cuts a bit, but that's okay. There's plenty around. <laughs> There's plenty of stuff. So you actually found all those films from the early 80s at a later point. I found them, yeah. And I was so happy. It was the best. It was a really, really good feeling. Particularly um, Ramp, the one where the concrete ball, this time a bona fide <laughs> concrete ball rolls down the old uh, on-off ramp of the West Side Highway. And the importance of video also coincided with that in terms of the art world, the acceptance of it. I mean... In the early days, you were part of well, the no-wave cinema movement, right? You, yes. And you actually had a movie theater. We did. On St. Mark's. And I think people don't often understand that now video art is... Ubiquitous. At the time, it was totally radical, right? There weren't many people doing it. All the people that were doing it were big heroes of mine. And I was well aware before I came to this country of Bruce Nauman and Bill Wegman and... Um, just about anyone who'd used video. I was at Chelsea Art School, and I tried to persuade them to get a porter pack, but they weren't going for it, so mm. I came here instead. Everything happened once you came here. Monuments is another piece I, I, I wanted to bring up for a number of reasons, both because it is another ode to the city or a response to the city that, that sort of brought you up, 
Yes. And also because... Brought me up, I like that. It's about time in a very deep way. So can you describe what that work was about and tell me a bit about how it came to be? I'd always loved the big granite paving slabs that form the sidewalks down in Tribeca and parts of Soho and and then parts of Brooklyn and other places, but in Manhattan, mostly right there. And uh, I'd always loved the marks on them, which are chisel marks made by the same guys that laid them a couple hundred years ago. And they, I mean, they're massive, those stones. They're like 14 feet by 10 feet and 12, 15 inches thick. They're absolutely, they're brutes of stones. <laughs> and they would put them down and then go in with a hammer and chisel and decorate them. Or so it seemed to me, it was a functional decoration in that it was to prevent people's feet from slipping when the stones got wet. But inevitably, you know, you start making marks and they start to form patterns, whether you want it or not, just by the way the body works and the mind. And these, you know, big guys, I have no idea who they were, but I imagine like guys from Italy and Hungary and Ireland and who knows where um, coming here and and decorating these stones together. <laughs> sitting around, I, I just imagine them sitting around smoking with like an old clay pipe or something and <laughs> talking about their wives and chiseling these blocks of stone into these patterns, which I found very beautiful and very immediate because they were a representation of a moment in time, like a day's work, a day's thought, a day's, maybe they didn't even think of it as work. It was like a day's something laid bare for all to see for many, many, many years. And the same stones that have been walked on, in some cases, literally by Abraham Lincoln, for all I know, or, you know, General Custer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like people who, it is New York. There's a connection, a very tangible connection with the past, which I like and which has appeared in a lot of the work. So I did rubbings of wax on a kind of tough synthetic paper, brought the, you know, I had a little crew of people and then we brought the rubbings like a English brass rubbing, you know, mm -hmm. in a church. We brought them back into the studio and gilded them. And I wanted them to be gilded in 22 karat gold because I wanted the best for these guys. I didn't want no cheap stuff. <laughs> so I spent a fortune on 22 karat gold leaf and we gilded them. And each painting is the size of the original stone. And if there's a corner missing or a crack, it's well seen that that's absent or, you know, present. They're facsimiles of something real presented in a way that changes them as these monuments to these anonymous workers who who made the city great and just happened to do it during the Gilded Age, which I like. Yeah, and you gilded them. And <laughs> yes. I wouldn't want to miss the idea that beauty is important to you. And you came through a time where beauty was in a way dismissed if it was beautiful, it couldn't mean anything. It was suspect. Yeah. And you kind of never 
seem to care about that because kinda, you pushed on. <laughs> I kind of never cared about that. Beauty's always been important to me for reasons other than it's the obvious ones of being attracted to something beautiful. There's almost something unbearable in beauty to me. It can evoke almost a sense of panic, you know, sort of like a low-grade panic. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone who wants is free to bring psychology to that. But I can't really explain it. But I find beauty very compelling and very disturbing at the same time. It also seems to be an instrument of control a little bit. And I don't mean control in a bad way. I mean that in the way that you use beauty from a surface perspective causes people inevitably with your work to stop for a second. Yes. And take a closer look. Yes. I don't plan it that way. It inevitably ends up having an element of that because I can't present it if it's not beautiful in some way. Yeah. It doesn't seem right. Or worth the time. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't, with the monuments, I wasn't trying to make anything beautiful per se, but I I did want to make something a kind of equivalent to walking into that museum in Cairo that has all the national treasures where you walk in and you're surrounded by a sea of gold. And I wanted to evoke those kind of ancient texts and ancient tablets and objects that you don't know what the hell they are. They remind me of like the Lascaux Caves and the idea of the primordial marking of our experience, this this very deep time thing that is the thing about, hum- and I think a lot of your work is about this, the things within the human experience that don't change based on culture. Yes. I like to see the similarities between people, I think. And just quickly, there's a strong connection with the act of writing and language in a lot of the work. These guys hacking at the sidewalk, in a sense, making it's a kind of graphism. As I was saying earlier, I've, I do think about the paintings as in some form being a kind of representing of language or of a kind of deeper language. There's a lot of dance in there. There's a lot of music in there and rhythm, like you were saying. Rhythm was always the thing I was best at in the band. Back to the paintings, the brush paintings specifically, and how you've always thought that if you connected all of them, it would be like one one painting. And you once said that your deepest being is contained within the brush strokes. I think that's true. What does that mean? To me, it means that my core being is present because they're unfiltered. They're un, like within the frame that I've chosen to work, all is revealed. I can't hide things within the paintings because if they do, I just can't do it. So if I make a mistake or something goes wrong or I don't like it, I take the whole thing off and begin again. I can't fix the end or, you know, retouch the beginning. 
because it's very important to me that these paintings are made in the same time frame as a photograph is made. There's a kind of instantaneity to the paintings. Again, it's, you know, anywhere from five to 15 seconds or something to make, to make a brushstroke. I might work on that brushstroke for days and days. Um, I might get it first time, but I have a method of erasing and repainting in very quick time. You know, I can erase as quickly as I can make a brushstroke. I just squeegee it off. I think my dual nature, the femininity, which has always been with me, mm -hmm. I think that's very present in the brushstrokes. One person has written about it, and that was in Milwaukee. The paintings are very sensual. They're very strong. But at the same time, they're very delicate. They're transparent. I only use transparent paints because I can't get the same kind of tonal modeling without. But there's a transparency, there's a delicacy, there's a sensuality, there are... For there, sure, they're full of curves. There are a lot of curves and sort of body parts. I think it says a lot about who I am. Yeah, I mean, this theme across all the work, and it's most obvious in the paintings of the brushstroke. Yes. But all of it is about fluidity. All of it, everything we've been talking about up to now has something to do with creating a space for fluidity. Yes. And actually stepping away from what happens within that space. That's not what you control. What you make is the space for it to happen. Yes, even the, the brushstrokes, I'm not exactly controlling. I'm not exactly not controlling. I'm, I'm riding that very fine line between one and the other where I'm kind of leading and following at the same time. And I've, just quickly, there's one. Please. Th there are a couple of lines in my notebooks uh, in this facsimile that I was telling you about. It says, um, things in motion, motion in things. The body has fluid, the fluid has body. End of story, that's my. <laughs> Which is pretty much summarizes what you've been saying for so many years. And and when you presented yourself as female in the the beginning of your Milwaukee show, which I want to get into, you said a lot at that time, there were clues everywhere, the billboards you were putting up everywhere your whole career, that it wasn't a kind of... It shouldn't have been big news to many people. It right. was to some. My friends, it, it wasn't really big news to my friends, although maybe the extent of it was, or the depth of it, the importance of it. The pain and confusion of it wasn't something I talked about. Or Yeah, when I showed up in Milwaukee, I'd just come out to the world such as it is in my universe at the opening to my show at Paul's Gallery, the Kasmin, and um, five days before. And then I was off to Milwaukee. It was a whirlwind. It was a total whirlwind. And this newspaper article greeted me on arrival as the inadvertent activist I was the inadvertent activist, which I kind of like now, you know, but 
at the time, it was like, I'm not an activist. I'm just little old me trying to figure things out, you know. So that at was... At 65 years old. At 65 years old, yeah. Go figure. I mean, in 2019, you mentioned you mounted your first retrospective. So let's just back up for anyone who doesn't know the story. Organized by the Milwaukee Art Museum by yes. an extraordinary curator. Right? Yes. Oh, my God. She's wonderful. Marcel Palednik. How did you approach that period of time? Because I know that we can get into a lot about the show and a lot of people can read in other places about how it's organized in a very unique way and yes. all of these things. But when I think about it, you worked on it for six years and transition doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It coincided with that. And there's this unbelievable parody between you putting your life's work organized for the first time yes. and this experience of transitioning. I hadn't planned it, but at a certain point I realized, oh, these are like two trains on different tracks and they're going to collide and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> they're going to collide right then. And when I realized how inevitable it was, I told Marcel, and to her eternal credit, she just went right to bat on my on my side or on my behalf. And she was incredible. She put out memos to the museum. She changed some of the bathroom signs to read all gender, bathroom, you know, stuff like that. It was very important. So I was greeted by total acceptance and it was a very very special experience especially as i really didn't know very much about who i was or where i was going or what i wanted i was really in a like i knew that i was on this trajectory i wasn't going backwards but i had no idea what lay ahead it was perfect that it coincided with the opening of my retrospective it just was too perfect to try and avert. <laughs> the retrospective was called Moves. It was, Nez Moves. <laughs> Movement is about transition. And like I was saying, you once said, I've been sending messages my whole life that no one picked up on. In what ways do you see your transition and your understanding of it over time, which is, I imagine, every day you learn more, in your work? You know, when you think about it through the lens of now, looking backwards. A very good friend of mine, Lucy Sant, who used to be Luke Sant, wonderful writer. Lucy said that one of the reasons she'd never wanted to come out about it was because she wanted to be a writer. And she knew that if she came out, she would be assigned the the trans beat always, and she didn't want to be confined by that. And I think possibly there was an element of that in me. I didn't want to be defined in my work about it. Really, my work hasn't changed much. And over the years, I've taken photographs. I could do a book of photographs. I did a lot of self-made photographs, like the red-handed one, with the camera on self-timer. Your first show ever, you presented yourself as female. My very first show in London at somewhere called The Art Meeting Place that was organized by a wonderful guy who some people may know called David Madala. 
who was Filipino. David was just wonderful and supportive. And he opened this place. And yeah, I took photos of myself again on the self-timer, wearing like my sister's clothes, and then clothes that I had summoned the strength to go and buy myself in department stores and things, and some crude makeup. And I took sequences of photographs of myself and then doctored them a little bit. I did some touch-up. I made the waist a little narrower. And I, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah, it's like this is a, an ideal we're after here. <laughs> At the time, I was doing a job as a motorcycle delivery person. I spent my days roaring around London on my motorcycle, delivering letters and things, and finding my way around London, because I didn't really know my way around. It's a tough town to get around. Yeah, it was interesting. I did a nice piece from my motorcycle. I signed my name across London by choosing roads that would write my name, and then recorded it on a little cassette and drew a map, and that's the piece. That's the kind of thing I was doing in London. So I was always kind of grubby and sweaty. I do remember one time these two guys came in, and one of them was very keen to show the other one my photographs, my work. And he, and he was like, look, look, look. Because he thought, I don't know what he thought, but he wanted to show his friend. And then I walked in and said hi, and they said, is this your work? And I said, yes. And they were like, oh, <laughs> turned around and left. I think they were hoping some very cute trans girl to come in or something, but that wasn't me at that time. It amazes me that I could have done that, just put this thing out. I did a lot of stuff using theatrical makeup. I would change my face and take photos and things. I was still doing that when I came to New York. I think there was a spirit of that in the air. Yeah, Bowie and... Cindy Sherman. I think it came from probably the same kind of places, Vito, Conchi, and others. But when you look at all of that work, you realize now how much you were dealing with this idea of there being no empirical truth or reality or binary thought. Yeah, I think so. And this idea of the self-portrait, the first image you made, many people who have experienced transition talk about the need to see yourself and the image as a tool. Yes. Tell me about that process of making oneself visible. I think it's more obvious when you take a photograph of yourself, but it's the same search, really, in anything you do as an artist, I think. In my photographs of myself, I, I have photographs that I have taken over the years, a great number of which are lost when I lost everything on my computer before I was smart enough to back it up. So there is a whole chunk that's missing, but there are photographs I would take of myself, and it's a way to sort of prove that you exist or to step aside from yourself and see yourself as though from the outside. And it's also a way of saying, in a sort of mute way to the world, here I am, don't you see me? I think I longed for to be seen and for acceptance. 
just further to this, you also came from this culture that had no understanding or tolerance. There was no word even, yeah. Well, except in comedy, there's a lot of men playing women in British theater, always has been since Shakespeare, and I'm sure the times before. When I was at schools, they were, until the age of 15, exclusively boy schools, and the boys always played the girls' parts much to my eternal envy. I always wanted to be chosen, but they never chose me. <laughs> Actually, if they had chosen me, I probably would have said, no way, not, not going there. Yeah, there's a kind of tradition of it, but at the same time, it's like it stops here, clunk. And... Like I said, there weren't even words for who I was. I realized at a certain point that I was different and that there was something possibly wrong with me, <laughs> but there was nobody to talk to about it or to question about it or not even any place that I knew of to read about it. I'm sure there were texts of one kind or another, but... The first I heard of it, yeah, was um, when I was sort of in my late teens, mid to late. Actually, that's not true. Well, fuck, I don't know. I remember when I was 15, I went to live in Italy because they didn't know what else to do with me. I remember these trans girls there. It's funny, I, most of the most intense memories from my entire life have to do with this aspect of myself in one way or another, usually in little moments that, of things that happened, like when I was about five, being presented in front of the whole school and the parents and all the teachers with the prize because I ran fastest in the running race and my prize was a little pink purse. And I was appalled and delighted at the same time. It was like, oh, you've seen, it was like this feeling of being seen and of being humiliated at the same time. And of course it was snatched away from me. There'd been a mistake, they'd given me the girl's prize. But for a moment there, I was in a state of suspension and I knew it and I was very young. Things like that. And I've got millions of them. <laughs> I'm sure. And you had daughters. Yes. And you had the experience of being a father. Yeah. Through all of that, did you feel that if you made it through this transition or if you decided to go through with it, you would lose these things? At a certain point, I was bringing up, raising children is such a monumental <laughs> task. And I did have three girls who are still the light of my life and who support me like 150%. They are amazing. Growing up, I do remember moments like, you know, taking them shopping, which they liked to do rather a lot. And I would sit 
like the, you know, like the dutiful husband or something. But in this case, the dutiful father. I would just sit around while they tried things on and said, "Oh, look at this." So there was a a kind of longing inside me. There always had been a kind of longing inside me when it came to any kind of accoutrement of femininity, uh, because they, it always seemed untouchable, like just not for me. I couldn't allow myself that. I couldn't be seen to want it. I just smothered myself, you know? And I've joked with them now about how difficult it was sitting around while they went shopping and and stuff. But it's funny, all those, you know, I, I used to have dreams, dreams of there'd be some beautiful dress I wanted to put on, but I couldn't put it on. It was like dreams of denial on other people's part of me being denied something. And uh, I haven't had those dreams so I must be on the right track. I haven't, I haven't had him in a long time. You're on your track, which is the right track. And, <laughs> yes. and what I was also curious about is this idea that in your work, you have wanted it all. I want to be a painter. I want to draw. That's I true. want to perform. I'm just interested in things. I want to do things. Yeah. And so I wondered if your decision to not transition until later in life was because you wanted it all. Not really. My decision to not transition was simply because I didn't know how the fuck I would be able to do it. It just seemed like it was for everybody else. I, I mean, you know, I was, I would go to Nan Golden's place. She had this lovely big loft on the Bowery and she lived with a bunch of I guess they would have called themselves drag queens. I never thought of myself as a drag queen. But certainly, like the gender-fluid environment of New York City in the 70s, you know, it's like, it's everywhere. And I obviously supported it, and I had friends who were... I didn't have many friends who were trans, but I knew quite a number of trans people, from Jackie Curtis to... I know, international crisis. I was connected, but it was like, not for me. What has ultimately shifted in your understanding of the female experience since the Milwaukee show? It's a very good question. And one of the things my kids asked me when they first learned of this. They always kind of knew it, but when I first sort of became more official, they asked, um, so what do you mean you feel like a woman? How does it feel to, to be a woman? And I would try to explain that it was a mental state, but I don't think I really understood what. I didn't understand what I knew. I didn't understand in some sense, what I was letting myself in for, what I was doing. I think we forget it's not that one minute you decide the next minute. Right. You're, it takes a long time. Yeah. Kind of like birth. Ten months you to know, get used to the idea that you're going to have a baby. Emotionally, I'm like, how many years has it been? Four years? I'm like a four-year-old child, a four-year-old girl. <laughs> in some ways, 
my mindset, my mentality, or what I know is not very much. I mean, it's a strange, convoluted, mixed-up kind of thing, but in some ways I think that's true, and I, I don't know how to dress sometimes, and I don't know that you shouldn't wear Bobby socks with pigtails or something. And as you've gotten older, I'm curious if you notice the change in terms of what you accept and what you reject now. So kind of like what you care about, what you don't. Does time for you create a truer self? Yes. It just does by virtue of being able to strip away the things that aren't important or aren't really mine with time you can do that more and more until you're really old and then you can just do whatever you want people be damned (laughs) and hopefully by then you've learned that you've got to be nice before we let you go i did want to ask you one final question which is so much progress has occurred in your lifetime there's language for it there's movements around it. There's a huge amount of dialogue happening right now about not just transitioning or transgender people, kids, but schools, everything. Sports. What gives you hope looking forward in time for others that may not fit into a predetermined category? I have incredible hope for the future when I consider young people today who've grown up with computers, they're way ahead of us. They're way ahead of anyone who came before. They're so smart, they're so wise. When I look at my girls who are really concerned about climate change and and gender rights and just all the right things, as far as I'm concerned, I'm astonished. I'm astonished by how capable they are incredible. And I think that I believe that there is, despite the kind of pullback from people on the right, religious people, nutcases, more than nutcases, really sinister in many ways, racists, just awful people, There's so much pullback, but I don't think it's strong enough. I think the movement, to coin a word, of the culture is just, it's inevitable. There's this trajectory that we're on, which you can't wind it back. You can try and they will, And they'll succeed sometimes. But I have great hope. You know, I've seen this thing appear, and the way it has appeared in America in particular seems to be in the great American tradition of spearheading something that then takes root over the world like blue jeans (laughs) or something. There's something which is the best of this country 
Uh, that's not to deny the work of people in other places. No, not at all. But I've watched it from within this country happen from, again, nothing, you know, when I first came here. And when I consider how kids, younger kids these days, don't care if you're gay or straight or somewhere in between or on this side of the spectrum or that. It's just like, it's not that they actively don't care. It's like, they just don't care. <laughs> it's not an issue. It, they don't think that way. And that to me is a sign of something incredibly powerful and something that's not going to just change because a few total assholes in other places want to try and pull us all back into the Stone Age. A recent guest on the podcast quoted someone else as saying, a stranger is someone in us that we don't yet know. That's nice. And I think that is the issue, that that's not totally understood. Yeah, I think that's true. Jamie, thank you so much for sharing today. This was really beautiful. You're welcome. That was my treat. Thank you. Extra thanks to our season six sponsor, Le Col School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. A unique place for learning, Le Col welcomes the general public to the world of jewelry through courses, conferences, exhibitions, videos, and book publications. You can find more about Le Col at www.lecolvancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can listen to our other podcasts at a distance by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. And if you like our programs, please be sure to subscribe and leave comments. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon. <laughs>